you might be surprised by the ancient Celts. Looks like they learned how to map their world from the Black Sea to Scotland using a celestial-based form of mathematics. What seems to be insignificant and uncontrolled is in fact part of a pattern. If you're in on the secret, you realize what the pattern means, but you're only shown a little part of it. Coming up, Graham Robb reveals what he's discovered from the Iron Age of Europe. To experience the ageless spirit of Ireland, take time to explore the back roads of its scenic south coast in County Cork. West Cork is not so much a place, it's a state of mind, where we slow down, have time for each other. And hire a local guide to see a side of Ireland you might not notice on your own. Start with the students at Trinity College in Dublin. They're fun. They're wise guys and wise gals. And the gift of gab is just flowering with these kids. Get up close and personal with Ireland in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When you visit Ireland, a local guide can help you see what lies beyond its 40 shades of green. I think it's worth your time and money to view today's Ireland in the context of its sometimes turbulent history with the help of a good local tour guide. So, on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll look at the value of hiring a local guide in Ireland. One of them will recommend places for us to explore along the wilds of its uncrowded south coast in County Cork. And author Graham Robb shares his discoveries about the world of ancient Celts and Druids from the days before the Romans pushed them beyond the edges of their empire. Let's start the hour with my friend Pat O'Connor. For two decades, Pat laid the foundation for the Rick Steves Ireland Guidebook and closely researched the land of his ancestors until his recent retirement. He joins us for a look at some of the specialized tours he's taken and recommends from Dublin to Dingle. Pat, thanks for joining us again. Great to be here, Rick. Thanks. Do you know what I mean about how in Ireland, if you can connect with a quirky tour, you get a a real surprise um, sparkle in that itinerary? You absolutely do. You absolutely do. You find some sort of forgotten nooks and crannies that are really fascinating. Um, There is a tour guide down in uh, Kinsale, actually two of them, Barry Maloney and uh, Don Hurley, who do an excellent job of explaining why Kinsale is such an important place in Irish history. It's where the fourth and final Spanish Armada tried to invade, and the Battle of Kinsale in 1603 really laid the roots for the power vacuum that created Northern Ireland 400 years later. Right there, a port, a strategic port on the south coast is why we have the Ulster situation in the northern part of Ireland. It's where the battle that was lost that started the whole ball rolling. And your, may, your eyes may be glazing over right now to try to figure that one out, but when you're with Barry and Don in Kinsale, yeah. you're standing right there with that star fort, and you can imagine the Spaniards over there, and you can imagine the British here. Yeah. But that's why you want a local guide. What's another tour that sticks out in your mind? Well, there's a couple in Dublin that are really fun. And they become popular enough that you want to maybe think ahead and possibly book them ahead. One is the musical Pub Crawl, um, which takes anywhere from 30 to maybe 40 uh, tourists around to three different pubs with a couple of musicians who are not only great musicians, but for 50% of the time, that gift of gab really shows. They're explaining the musical instruments, which ones are indigenous, which ones are not. And it's all ad lib. It's not canned stuff. Um, Questions and answers, it's... uh, it's really fun. I, I'm a big fan of that. What's the other one? Well, the other one is a, a more fun than it might sound. It's actually a literary pub crawl. And what you're doing is going between pubs with a couple of actors instead of a couple of musicians. Huh. And these guys are quoting famous Irish authors like uh, Joyce and Oscar Wilde in a really fun vibe. Well, we will 
be in a pub very shortly. This is what we call a culture stop without any drink. The next stop we call a drink stop without any culture. This is Trinity College. In, in an environment where you can actually laugh and have fun. Exactly. Rather in than pub. trying to read about it in your hotel room. That's right. Take me outside of Dublin. What's another good tour? Okay, well, there is a tour that is actually a minivan loop around the tip of the Dingle Peninsula. It's a sleighhead loop is the name of that loop. It's maybe mm-hmm. 40 miles. And um, there's a gentleman who is the retired police chief of Dingle. His name is uh, Tim Collins. And he and his son have been operating tours around this loop for decades. They're gentlemen, they're scholars, and they're archaeologists. And uh, the Dingle Peninsula is really an intimate uh, peninsula for archaeology. And Dingle is a cute town, but it's a springboard for the countryside. And the countryside can be frustrating. You know, we can give a guided walk, and we can write it in the book, and people can do that in Dublin. But to, to lace together these obscure, faded, evocative prehistoric or medieval sites in the great outdoors of Ireland, it's so nice to be in a minibus with a local guide who knows exactly what to do. The success of a tour like Tim's has spawned competition, and when you go to a place like Dingle, you're likely to find several outfits in minibuses offering these tours and talk about a great investment of time and money. Absolutely. Another tour that that blew me away was the the strange plant life of the burren, and there's farm boys that really know the burren. Exactly. This is a lunar-like landscape where there's almost nobody living there. There's almost no dirt. It's got this honeycombed kind of weird rock, but in there, there's a, it's like a, a kaleidoscope of plant life. It, it is, Rick. It's, it's a limestone um, terrain that absorbs the heat, so it's unusual for botanists because they can find plants that normally grow in the Mediterranean growing right next door to plants that normally grow in the Arctic. And so if you're interested in botany or natural history or the way early man defoliated the, the whole go. countryside uh, to contribute to the landscape of the Burren, uh, geologists as well, they now, love it. Pat, Joe Tourist, Joe and Mary Tourist, they're going to drive right by the Burren. They'll be their guide. We can say, here, you got the place where Cromwell said there's not enough dirt to bury a man and not enough trees to hang him. Yeah. And then they get out to the Cliffs of Moher to go to that tourist attraction. They're oblivious to all the natural wonder that they're driving by. Yeah. If you got online a couple days earlier, you could find a tour of that. It cost you a few bucks, but it would give meaning to that whole part of Ireland. And getting into the countryside, getting out of the car, getting tactilely standing on a bog that's bouncy or or rocks that have seen, you know, early man for 5,000 years, it's We were rolling on on this with our TV show, and I've still got this in the bloopers, but a rabbit ran by. I go, there's a rabbit. And he goes... No, it's a hare. It's not a rabbit. It's a <laughs> hare, you stupid tourist. <laughs> these are good, unvarnished farm boys yeah, that are doing these tours. but they know their stuff, too. Yeah. Now, from the burn there near Galway, you could take a boat ride out to the Aran Islands. That's mm-hmm. the most desolate, our most untouched, most distant corner of Ireland in so many ways. Yeah. I had an unforgettable um, kind of farm boy minibus tour there and learned a lot. Yeah, yeah. The minivan drivers who drive folks around uh, Inishmore, the largest of the three islands, are invaluable because they are not only fluent in the local Irish language, but they tell the hard scrabble life of the people who existed out there, mm-hmm. literally having to make their own dirt. Making their own dirt, dragging yeah. seaweed out of the sea and then drying it and mixing it with the clay or whatever. Sand and the animal sand. dung and oh, there you've geez. got your vegetables. there you garden. go. And yeah. now you've got potatoes, God willing, next year. That's and if it. you don't, you're going to be hungry. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of affluence in Ireland, but I think it's missed the Aran Islands. And when you go out there, 
They need the tourism, and these farmers love to... They, I, in my memory, there's five or six minibuses uh, waiting for every uh, ferry that rides. Yeah, exactly. And, and you just jump on, and you got a three-hour tour, and you got a local friend. cost you 20 bucks. That, that's the perfect weatherproof way to do it, but if the weather's great, there's also pony cart uh, rides that are slower uh-huh. and more expensive, but ah, you, know, you get the wind yeah. in your hair, and yeah. it's fun. There's so many ways. Pat O'Connor has been the co-author of the Rick Steves Ireland Guidebook for 20 years. He's recommending some of the local tours and guides that help illuminate what you see in Ireland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Um, I understand the Waterford Crystal Tour. Waterford was just such a thing. Is it out of business now? What do we do when we want to experience crystal in Ireland? Well, okay, so that was a victim of the 2008 crash, and it was bought by new ownership that decided to make it a more intimate experience. It's still factory, but most of the big production is offshore, other countries with cheaper labor. So the factory tour now is with craftsmen who are just working on the unusual sort of sports trophies and things like that. So there still is a tour where you can see the crystal being carved. And you're almost encouraged to interact with the uh, craftsmen who used to be behind a, a fence before. Another thing on a lot of people's checklist and they go to Ireland is whiskey. Yeah. I remember three tours to appreciate whiskey. One yeah. in the south, one in the north, and one in Dublin. Is that yeah. still the Yeah, so case? there's Jameson's in Dublin, and there is um, a down at Old Middleton Distillery down near Cork. And uh, then up in the north uh, near Port Rush is actually the Bush Mills Distillery, which is the oldest uh, whiskey distillery. Are, are each of these roughly the same experience? I would say they are generally. They're, they're, I have to say they're corporate experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you see the, the little slideshow about the... Yeah, it's a big ad. It, it's a big ad. But um, you get to try some whiskey at the end. But that's right. That's right. There's real history to it as well. and uh, There's a lot of corporate stuff going on. I mean, that's the interesting thing as Ireland has developed. I mean, Guinness is probably the most visited site in that Ireland. Is. And the cruise ship industry has had a lot to And that shapes an impact it. Too. Oh, yeah. yeah. So if you want to do a whiskey tour, I think it's worth a, an hour or two of your time. And just, um, you know, you've got the, the one in the north, one in the south, and one in Dublin. Speaking of the north, Pat... Um, when it comes to that wall, and there are still walls in separating Protestant and Catholic neighborhoods, believe it or not, still today in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, um, how do we learn about those walls? Well, there are excellent tours with black taxi drivers. These are local guys and gals. Who, not black like um, African No, no, no. American. The taxi itself is, taxi is a black-colored black. taxi like you right. see in London or other parts of the British Isles. These guys and gals are amazing for their insights because they've lived through the troubles and they know how to communicate it. And they have their opinions, which is kind of refreshing as well. You're not going to get just the homogenized for tourism. They have their opinions, you know, from their own experience. So I think it's a great experience. And there are taxi drivers who do both neighborhoods now. Yeah, that's what I took a tour which prided itself in not only doing both neighborhoods, but you changed drivers halfway through the tour. Perfect. First, you got Seamus, and you're going to get the Catholic perspective. That's ideal. And then you got John, and you're going to get the Protestant or the Unionist perspective. So valuable. It was really good. Pat, it's so much fun to to celebrate the value of connecting with these quirky little tours. All the tours we've talked about, I think virtually all of them, except for, well, even the whiskey tour is not expensive because it's an ad, they're all affordable. Mm-hmm. They're all easy to do. You don't need, it's just a matter of giving a ring and knowing where it is and when it is and being there. Irish-American Pat O'Connor is our source for finding some of Ireland's best local guides right now on Travel with Rick Steves. The last one I'd like to talk about is in Dublin. And it's just, when you want to understand Trinity College, 
there's a little booth just at the entryway. And for 30 years, I've been chatting with the students at this booth. What are they selling? Uh, well, they're selling their walking tours of the college from a student's perspective, which is refreshing. And they're fun. They're wise guys and wise gals. And the gift of gab is just flowering with these kids. But they're at a pretty prestigious university, so they got their smarts to even be in the door. And um, These are smart kids, and yeah. they've got a little wit, and they've you got bet. a little political edge, and they've got a little sass. And they're willing to express it, yeah. And that's something that is on the fly, and it costs you, I mean, just a few euros now. It's six or seven euros, something like that. Six or seven euros, and you've got a half an hour with an intimate chat with a college student walking around the college. Yeah, ask him for a recommendation after the tour of his favorite nearby pub or something. Pat O'Connor, there are many, many more of these kind of tours all over Ireland. In fact, all over the world in our travels. But we have highlighted some cool little opportunities to make the Emerald Isle even more enjoyable. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for all the work you've put into this guidebook and for sharing with us today your love of Ireland. My pleasure, Rick. Thank you. One of Pat's local guide recommendations suggests we explore his corner of Ireland along its south coast and the wild beauty of West Cork in just a bit. And an American visitor shares what she learned at sites that depict the grim years of the Irish famine. But first, what started out as a bicycle trip from the Pyrenees to the Alps taught Graham Robb some amazing things about the intricate and sophisticated world of the ancient Celts. The author of The Discovery of Middle-Earth explains next on Travel with Rick Steves. It started out as a bicycle journey along the fabled Heraclean Way. It's one of Europe's oldest pathways where Hercules is said to have traveled to the ends of the earth. What Graham Robb didn't expect to find is evidence of the lost world of Celts and Druids from more than 2,000 years ago, back before Roman invaders pushed them north and destroyed much of the evidence of their advanced society. Graham wrote The Discovery of Middle-Earth to map out the precision he believes the ancient Celts used to order their world, a sophistication that Graham contends has been overlooked for far too long. Graham, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me. So your book is sort of based on Celts get too little credit. Who were the Celts and why do they get too little credit? Well, the Celts were really just the majority of the population of Western Europe from about 800 BC on. And we can't can't really say the Celts were one particular group of people because there were Celts in the extreme southwest of Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, and at the same time, there were Celtic tribes, tribes who spoke a Celtic language, way out to the east, beyond Switzerland in, in the, the Eastern Alps. Hmm. And the Romans themselves didn't really know who the Celts were. But it's great when you look at these historical maps and you can see how different peoples were bullied and pushed around over the centuries. And I've got this image of Celts sort of populating much of Europe, but then more aggressive people came and they pushed Celts to the less desirable fringes. And today we think of Celtic uh, peoples in Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Brittany, Cornwall, and so on. When we think of later history, is that where the Celts ended up? Yeah, that's true. That is uh, a much later development. They were pushed out towards the fringes of Europe. And that's when the Celts began to look like a distinct ethnic group, whereas before they were as as diverse as the, the population of Europe. It was with the uh, invasions and the settlement of the Anglo-Saxons in Britain 
that the people originally defined as Celtic were pushed out towards the, the fringe, the less productive parts of uh, Western Europe, in particular Brittany, Wales, Ireland and, and northern Scotland, Western Scotland. Would they have related languages today? Yes, they do have related languages, and those languages are related to much older Celtic languages. What are the Celtic languages that survive today? Uh, there's Breton in Brittany, and then the various forms of Celtic that are spoken in Wales and Ireland and Scotland. And uh, the original Celtic language of continental Europe became extinct by about 600 AD, and no one really knows mm. why it disappeared so completely. And by then, there were just a few people in remote rural areas who still spoke the ancient language. We know very little about that original Celtic language. In your book, uh, well, in my mind, Celtic people are these hardscrabble people eking out an existence in hardscrabble lands, and they're, they're kind of crude. And uh, in your book, you, you mentioned that's really the result of Roman propaganda. What do you mean by that? Well, the Romans liked to think of the Celts as mud-smeared hooligans who were a threat to the Roman Empire. When the Romans conquered large parts of Western Europe, their aim was not to spread civilization. Their aim was to protect Rome and to create a, a safe buffer zone between uh, the wild barbarians of the rest of Europe and Rome. And when they marched into Gaul and then Britain, they were primarily interested in wealth, which took the form of precious metals and particularly slaves. And there was some opposition to the, the genocidal tactics of the Romans in Rome itself. And so it was important for the Romans to say they're not really human, they're like animals. And uh, fortunately, we know from the archaeological record, but also from Greek writers, that that's a, a travesty. It, it wasn't like that at all. Well, you know, when you go to London, you see that dramatic statue of Queen Boadicea. She was a Celt that stood up against the Romans, wasn't she? Yes, she led a rebellion against Rome, and that is a typical Celtic trait, that it was a woman who became the leader. They had a matrilineal succession in a lot of parts of, of Celtic Europe. This was particularly shocking to the Romans, that a woman could single-handedly destroy the three main centres of Roman power in Britain. And it was presented as a kind of wild rampage. This is what happened if the passion of a Celtic woman was uh, unleashed. <laughs> But in fact, it was a very highly organized, well-supplied military campaign because you can't wipe out three major Roman towns in a very short space of time without very careful planning. Graham Robb wrote The Discovery of Middle-Earth, Mapping the Lost World of the Celts, to make the case for what he's uncovered about the Celtic people from 50 generations back and how they organized their world from the Black Sea all the way to Ireland. Graham has won a number of awards for his work on French history. His latest title is France, an Adventure History. We have links to Graham's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Graham, when you think about Celts being victims of propaganda, I guess the flip side of that is they're more sophisticated than we give them credit for. In your research for writing The Discovery of Middle-Earth, what dimensions of Celtic culture did you find that were impressive because they were so sophisticated? The discovery that really most pleased me was the temples of the Celts all over Europe took a very particular shape. It looks like a rectangle that's been drawn by a child or a person who can't draw straight. And this seems to fit in with Roman propaganda. They didn't mm -hmm. bother having a tidy square or rectangle. 
But actually, those rectangles are a, a particular shape that's produced when you draw an ellipse, which is the, the shape of the sun's yearly course through yeah. the sky. And that's very typically Celtic, that what seems to be insignificant and uncontrolled is in fact part of a pattern. And if you're in on the secret, you realise what the pattern means, but you're only shown a little part of it. That's amazing, because reading through your book, it's filled with math. I mean, these maps, you can draw these grand schemes on the maps, and it, was, it just can't be accidental. They were quite sophisticated in their, in their mapping and in their, in their math. Yes, they were. For us, it's not complicated math at all. It's basic Euclidean geometry, which they seem to have learned from the Greeks, because the big influence on the Celtic world early on, before Rome was an empire, came from Greece. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Graham Robb. His book is The Discovery of Middle-Earth. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Steve's on the line calling in from Albany in Oregon. Steve, thanks for your call. Hi. Yep. Great to talk to you. Yeah, I do have a question. Uh, I'm an engineer, and my wife and I are in the early stages of planning a trip to, to Scotland, and we're very interested in the science and engineering of ancient peoples, and so we're interested in what sites would be good to see, especially sites that you can get to without having, to, having a car. Not having a car is a great advantage, really. Um, if you have a bicycle, that's quite useful. But if you're going to Scotland, I think the place to start is the line from Glasgow to Edinburgh, where the Romans built the Antonine Wall. And the interesting thing about the places along the Antonine Wall, which looks like a Roman frontier like Hadrian's Wall, is that a lot of them had Celtic names and were there before the Romans. There are very few Celtic remains actually to be seen on the ground. But if you go along the Antonine Wall, you know that you'll be following a Celtic path that crossed northern Britain at its narrowest point. And depending on which direction you go in, you could go to either the museum in Glasgow or the wonderful National Museum in Edinburgh, where you'll find all sorts of wonderful, almost microscopic objects of Celtic art. And as an engineer, you'll you'll appreciate probably better than some art historians that these objects, which seem to be based on an individual's fantasy and imagination, are actually based on mathematical patterns, very precise geometric patterns. And once you work out the relatively simple intersecting circles that produce the pattern, uh, you realise that you're just seeing, as with the temples, a little part of of that pattern. So I think if you're interested in Celts, you've, you've picked one of the best countries to go to. Hey, Steve, you've got some interesting sightseeing coming up in Scotland. Thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks. I'm really looking forward to reading the book, too. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating book. Best wishes, Steve, on your trip. Yeah, thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Graeme Robb and his book, The Discovery of Middle-Earth. Graeme, when you look at a museum and you find these exquisite bits of Celtic uh, jewelry or whatever, ballpark, what century would that be usually? Well, the classical period of Celtic art is pretty much 1st century B.C. And when did the Romans come into Britain? Um, well, Julius Caesar had a, a raiding party or two uh, around about 55, 54 B.C., but the first serious invasion was 43 A.D., and that's when the Romans moved into Britain very, very quickly. So the Celts flourished until the Romans came in the first century. What did the Romans see? I mean, if you were there, a Roman, coming across the English Channel, 
trying to establish the Roman Empire and, and establish Britannia and setting up your base in Londinium. What did they see when it comes to the existing uh, society? Well, we now know, thanks to greatly improved archaeological techniques, that instead of finding the barbarians that uh, they'd heard about from Roman writers, they found people who lived in towns with streets uh, that were divided into different districts, residential and industrial and religious. And they would have been surprised probably to find that uh, they could get red wine from Mm. Italy and even Greece. And they could even snack on Mediterranean olives. And it's only recently that archaeologists have dug down low enough to discover that towns did exist in Britain before the Romans, despite what Caesar said. He said they just fortify their tangled woods and Uh call it a town. To what degree did the fact that the Celts did not write down their history and the Romans did shape what we understand today? Yeah, it had a huge effect. And and also the fact that uh, the Romans built in stone, whereas the Celts usually built in timber. Mm -hmm. And structural archaeologists have shown that some of the timber structures of the Celts, some of their wooden mansions were greater feats of engineering than any Greek or Roman temple. And in fact, the Druids, who were the intelligentsia of the Celts, were literate. It's often said they were illiterate because they passed on their their knowledge in their schools in the form of verse, which was memorized by mm. the pupils. But it was a very literate society because writing implements have been found all over the Celtic world. And in fact, one of our main sources on the extinct continental Celtic language is uh, cursed tablets and love tokens that were etched by relatively uneducated people. And one of the very few complete sentences of ancient Celtic that we know says, Nata Rimpi Kormida, which means pretty girl, give me some beer. This was written to a fiancé. So even relatively uneducated people were literate and knew how to read and write. Now that's a sophisticated society. Pretty girl, give me some beer. Yeah, (laughs) and it it was obviously uh, not quite as sophisticated as asking for wine, but we know they, they also love Greek wine. Now, in your, in your studies, Graham, were there any characters that you just were really struck by? It just seems to me that in prehistoric or, or societies that didn't have a, a developed sort of written history, you don't really know the characters, the personalities. Who's your favorite Celtic personality? Well, the, the one I found most impressive was a man called Divikiarchus, whose name means the Avenger. And he was Caesar's best friend in Gaul because his tribe was briefly allied to Rome. And he was also, we know from another source, a druid. And far from being one of these uh, mystic, muddled, white-robed priests, he was a diplomat and a politician. He was one of the very few non-Romans to address the Roman Senate. And he stayed in Rome in Cicero's house on the Palatine Hill and wrote a eulogy to his host. He was also a philosopher and he was a scientist, he was a mathematician and a diplomat. You know, he was in some ways more cosmopolitan than many Roman politicians and yet he was a druid. And from a history point of view, he happened to be friends of Caesar's and they wrote about him in Rome and we know about him today. Yes, that's right, Mm -hmm. yes. As you say, there are few individuals that we know about from this period. Fascinating. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Graham Robb. He's written a remarkable study of the lost world of the ancient Celts. It's called The Discovery of Middle-Earth. It was released in the UK with the title The Ancient Paths, Discovering the Lost Map of Celtic Europe. 
Jake's on the phone at 877-333-7425 from Bend in Oregon. Hey, Jake. Hi, Graham. Hi, Rick. Now, when I was in Ireland, I was told that the Irish Celts adopted Christianity so readily because there were so many correlations between the pre-Christian Celtic beliefs and the early Christian Celtic beliefs. Could you kind of describe some of the pre-Christian Celtic beliefs and then maybe comment on that idea that perhaps there was enough of a correlation that it made adoption of Christianity an easy adoption? Yes, you're exactly right, and that's a very well-made point, because there are very direct correlations between Druidism, or Celtic religion, and the early forms of Christianity. For example, I mentioned just now the elliptical form, the implicit elliptical form that their temples took. And we know from some of the early saints, in particular St. Patrick, that uh, one of the early Christian rituals involved processing sunwise in the direction of the sun around the temple or the well that was to be consecrated. And that's something that clearly comes directly from the Celts. And some of the early saints in Ireland were called Druids. This was the name that was applied to them. And when you look at the historical reality of some of the earliest saints, like uh, St. Bridget, who's the female patron saint of Ireland, you realize there are very curious correlations between these individuals and Celtic gods, because Bridget had the name of a Celtic goddess, and the stories, some of the stories of her life say that she was brought up or fostered by a druid. So those elements of ritual do show a continuity between the Celts and Christianity. Jake, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking it. Yeah, when you look at the maps and the charts in your book, you can see that this is all cohesive, and it's like there's a grand plan, and it's not some creepy theory about visitors from outer space. These are real people uh, who could uh, sell the Romans some wine when they decided to take them over. <laughs> it's an amazing story. Graham, when you when you go sightseeing today, or let's say you've got a friend that's new to this and wants to be just uh, really impressed by how misunderstood and, and relatively sophisticated the Celtic culture was, where's one place you'd take us just to, to really be able to marvel at, at this civilization? Uh, that's a very difficult question because um, on the surface, so little remains. Actually, museums are priceless in this respect because you can go to Celtic hill forts and see things on a grand scale and you can, you can go to these places that do give you a sense mm-hmm. of belonging to a much wider landscape. But you also have to go with a digital camera or a powerful magnifying glass to the museums and see the same kind of impressive organization on a very, very small scale. Mm -hmm. And it's best to go prepared because what I often found was in Vienne, for example, south of Lyon in southern France, I knew they had a fantastic collection of Celtic gold coins. And I spoke to the deputy curator there because I couldn't find them anywhere. They weren't on display. And she said, no, the director said that no one would be interested. And I asked her why... Would there be this lack of interest in the Celts? And she said, uh, because they lost to the Romans. It's so true. I mean, I can think of many times I've been in a museum in, in Britain or, or even beyond, and I've looked at something, I've squinted at it, it's so exquisite and delicate, and I go, oh, those Romans were amazing. And then I realized, no, it's Celtic. These are the people the Romans <laughs> defeated. And it reminds me, we've got a lot to learn when it comes to the Celts. Yes, we do. Graham Robb, author of The Discovery of Middle-Earth, 
Mapping the Lost World of Celts. Thanks so much for this. Uh, a lot of work you've put into this. This is an amazing story, and it, you've really hit on something. We just don't appreciate the Celtic uh, civilization as we might, and as travelers, I think you've done, a, done us a huge favor. Thanks and best wishes. Thanks very much, Rick. We'll explore the fierce beauty of Ireland's south coast in County Cork. That's up next on Travel with Rick Steves. When you grow up in the largest county in Ireland, you can be almost spoiled by all of what's around you. County Cork, in Ireland's deep south, has a lot to boast about. It has some of the country's greenest and most productive pasture land. It's home to many of Ireland's high-tech firms. And there's many a Georgian mansion, ruined castle, prehistoric stone circle, and important battle sites scattered all around the county. It's also where thousands of Irish men, women, and children got their last look at their homeland when poverty forced them to emigrate and take their chances on a crowded Atlantic crossing. Barry Maloney grew up on a farm a few miles upstream from Kinsale, where he now hosts walking tours of the historic town. He's back with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend what you can see along Ireland's south coast as you venture into the scenery and small towns along the wild Atlantic Way. Hey, Barry. Hi, Rick. Great to talk to you. And, yeah, let's talk about the wonders of the South Coast. Take me on a quick review then, Barry. Before we get into specifics, let's just say you got a week and you're going to travel from Wexford and Rosslare over there on the southeastern tip of Ireland where the boat leaves for France, all the way over to Dingle Peninsula, one of my favorite places anywhere in Europe on the southwest tip. What are the highlights if you were to drive from Wexford all the way to Dingle? Sure, well, that would be wonderful to have a week because then you could slow down a little bit, you know, and uh, as they say, go where Ireland takes you. I'd stay in Kinsale along the way, and then I wouldn't forget West Cork. It's uh, the area basically between Kinsale and Dingle, and or Killarney, and they would say down here, West Cork, it's not so much a place, it's a state of mind, where we slow down, have time for each other. So it's kind of an eclectic mix of artists, musicians, and food artisans, hmm. mixed with the farming communities that go back generations. And there's a lot of lovely, charming small towns you could stop in, uh, Clonakilty, for example, famous as the birthplace of Michael Collins, the rebel leader who fought for Irish independence and negotiated our independence from the United Kingdom. Uh-huh. But after Clonakilty, then, which is uh, west, there's a lovely farming town, Skibbereen. And that's where you connect with the sad history of Ireland. There's a huge famine mass grave there and a museum all about the famine. And then when you get out to the west, the landscape gets much more uh, rugged and jagged and coastal. And right down the southwest corner, there's five beautiful peninsulas that jut out into the Atlantic. Kind of like five fingers, you know? Yeah. Mizzen Head would be the, the most southwesterly point of Ireland. So it's really got this edge of the world feeling. And of course, the Ring of Kerry is the touristy one. And everybody goes down there as part of the routine in Ireland, and you, you make the Ring of Kerry. Can you talk a little bit about an alternative to the Ring of Kerry for those of us who want to be immersed in the in the natural grandeur of Ireland, but don't want to be in a in a traffic jam of tour buses? Sure, Rick. Uh, well, I know your favorite would be Dingle, but just to f- focus on another little jewel uh, for once, the Beira Peninsula is really beautiful. It's uh, the, the Middle Peninsula, and it's it's got this really amazing visual contrast between rugged, dark, folded rocks, green rolling fields, and the blue sea, and, and the waves slapping, and the, the salty air in your face, you know? And you could do a lovely drive out around that, and there's a kind of mountain pass that goes over it as well. So that's, B, is that, how do you pronounce that? Or how do you spell that? Beira was B-E-A-R-A, Beira. And what what about Bantry? 
Bantry then is a really beautiful harbour town and the best place to appreciate Bantry, there's a 18th century house, Bantry House, which is these beautiful manicured gardens up behind it. And there's 99 steps going up behind the house. And when you look mm. back on the top, it's spectacular. You're looking down over the house and the whole bay is in front of you. And even better, do it in the evening because the sun sets into Bantry Bay. Songs have been written about that. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful place known for its seafood and its cheeses and agricultural produce down there as well. Also, you've got this notorious Blarney Stone, which is just a kitschy tourist trap. Mm-hmm. But it does remind us of the gift of gab in it Ireland. Does, yeah, and what yeah. a charming part of the Irish experience that is. Yeah, and we learned that as youngsters in school. We learned that very quickly, that the guy getting all the girls was not the most handsome guy or the strongest guy. He was the guy with the quick wit, you know, the funniest guy. So that's uh, there, there's really an incentive for people to be uh, good with the gift of gab, and you, you get a lot of time to practice that in the pubs. True, and storytelling, you know. Storytelling goes way back to the ancient times, telling stories around a, a campfire, you know. So the best storytellers really get the attention are the best singers. If you can sing a story, you know, it's even better in the, in the pubs. You know, there's, there's a magic that you get when you go... Uh, people who are listening now might not quite relate to what we're talking about, but... There's many times I've been, not all the time I go to a pub in Ireland, but many times when you go to a pub in Ireland, there's just an alignment of the music and the crowd and the conviviality. And when you sit down and share a beer with somebody there, you'll learn about those beautiful poetic, I mean, you almost become a poet when you, when you sit down and you connect with somebody in a pub. By the way, we're talking with Barry Maloney, and he's a, a tour guide in the south of Ireland. His hometown is Kinsale. He's just written a book on his hometown called Kinsale. And Barry's website is historicstrollkinsale.com. So when I think of the south coast of Ireland, Barry, first thing I think of is Cork and a little town near Cork called Cove. It's spelled C-O-B-H, but it's pronounced Cove. And if I think of the, the historic things that have happened there, I mean, didn't Cove used to be called Queenstown because Queen Victoria was first step in Ireland was right there back in the middle of the 1800s? Sure, yeah. They, they renamed the town after her visit. And Cove, of course, uh, world famous as the last port of call of Titanic. So the last place Titanic stopped before sailing away. In fact, there's a great museum in Cove about the Titanic. Isn't there, yeah. And there's a walking tour called the Titanic Trail, uh, which I, I love that tour. And I, on that tour, I always like to learn about the seven lucky people who got off the Titanic. They were the last to get off. Seven people got off in Cove. Isn't that something? Yeah. And generally speaking, I, like I don't want to generalize too much about the, the South Coast, but generally speaking, along the South Coast, the English influence would be stronger for two reasons. One, the, the farmland was better. And secondly, we're on the trade route, on the English trade route from the New Worlds. I get this strong sense that England took the best land and told the people who were there first to, to go west, go to the rocky land where it's not so good for farming. In fact, just near Cork, uh, there's a place called Hook Head and a village called Crook. And all my life we've said, by hook or by crook, we're going to take that, you know. And that actually goes right back to there. Cromwell, sort of the English conquistador, uh, came there and said, we're going to take Waterford by hook Hook or by by crook. And it just reminds me, the English had a huge presence there and they took the best land. And consequently, a lot of people left the country during the hard times Mm -hmm. and... When you travel in the South, you can go to the Kennedy Homestead mm-hmm. and learn about how the great-grandfather of JFK left Ireland in 1858. And you can also go to the Dunbrody Famine Ship and actually walk through one of those ships that were nicknamed the Coffin Ship. 
Tell us, as a tour guide, what do you share about the, the famine ship and about the Kennedy homestead? Well, those uh, coffin ships were aptly named because so many people flooded out of Ireland after the famine that uh, the ships were overstocked. And many of them, those ships were designed for carrying freight, like wood. They'd be bringing wood from America back to Europe and then packed jam full with uh, poor and starving Irish people. So obviously, a lot of them died on the way. They didn't Mm -hmm. make it to America, you know. The ones that made it were the lucky ones. The scars of the famine are still here with us because the island of Ireland, our population is still 30%, over 30% less than it was 200 years ago. So what is, what, before it was, before the famine, it was what, five million? Uh, eight and a quarter million. Eight, oh my goodness. So now it's down to... Now it's six million on the island. Whereas, uh, say, England, their population would be five-fold what it was 200 years ago. Hmm. And of course, America would be over 30 times what it was 200 years ago. And I guess that's because a lot of the Irish are over there. Probably more people of Irish descent in America than there are Irish in Ireland. Definitely. And, and there's a great movie I'd like to recommend to your listeners. If they want to see visually what uh, the south coast of Ireland looks like and also get into our history. It's a beautiful movie called The Wind That Shakes the Barley. The Wind That Shakes the Barley. And of course, the title has its own story because 100 years ago, when Irish rebels were fighting uh, for independence, they carried in their pockets barley or oats as a kind of provision food while they were moving from ambush site to ambush site. And if they were killed, they'd often be buried on unmarked graves. And of course, the seeds of barley would shoot up in the spring. And this symbolized the Irish resistance against English rule, you know. But it's a, it's oh, a really beautiful movie. It's all about our civil war and our early independence. I love that movie, but I didn't know the meaning of the name. What an evocative thing. Ireland has such a rich and long story. In a lot of ways, it's a terrible beauty. I, I, I like that phrase because it talks about the heartache but the majesty of Ireland at the same time. The great thing about Ireland to me is how accessible, not people, but friends are. I mean, you've got friends in Ireland, and it's just, it sounds a little bit um, silly maybe to say it, but you really do. When you go to Ireland, you make friends, like you make friends nowhere else in your travels. You know why, Rick? We love to talk. And uh, we never know that you're some long-lost cousin coming back to us. You know, there's so many. (laughs) There's, eight, there's 80, eight zero, 80 million people worldwide who claim uh, direct Irish ancestry. There's only 6 million oh of us here. Wow. So let's just finish our discussion up here, Barry, with take me to a place where we can be still and ponder the rich and, and beautiful story, the heritage of Ireland. Where would you take me just to cap these? Oh, I'm delighted. Yeah, I'm delighted you asked that question, Rick. And the place that jumped into my mind was uh, Drumbeg Stone Circle. It's one of the most accessible stone circles in Ireland, about 3,000 years old, with 17 stones in a circle facing the southwest coast and also lined up with the setting sun on the shortest day of the year. Because thousands of years ago, our ancestors feared, as the days got darker and darker and darker, that they might not get brighter again. So they, they gathered on that day to see the sun set and pray, basically, that it would rise again the next day and the days get longer again into the spring and into the crops being sown and hope. And, and I think we can learn a lot from those ancestors, can't we? That's a beautiful thing. to and, and to take a thought like that with you to one of those mysterious Stonehenge-type stone circles and then to imagine it 3,000 years ago. Barry Maloney, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your book, Kinsale. And I will see you next time I'm in the south of Ireland and we'll enjoy some, uh, a nice hike 
to a stone circle and then uh, drop by a good restaurant and have some fresh seafood. And don't forget the music, Rick, because the music inspired by the landscape just uh, really will, even if you don't think you have it, it'll reignite your Irish DNA. Ah, I want my all of my Irish DNA, all that little Norwegian Irish DNA. I want to <laughs> give it a spark, and I'll get that next time I see you. Thanks, Barry. Thank you, Rick. And so I said, the mountain glen, I'll seek it morning, early, and join the bold united men, while soft wind shakes the barley. Barry Maloney hosts walking tours of his home base of Kinsale, Ireland. He also collects many of the town's tales and legends in his book. It's called Kinsale. Barry's online at historicstrollkinsale.com. He tells us more about what it means to call County Cork the Rebel County of Ireland. That's in a short extra to today's interview that we've posted on our website at ricksteves.com radio. You'll also find a short clip there from Irish tour guide and innkeeper Stephen McPhillamy. He tells us the story of a symbol you can spot all over the north of Ireland, the legendary Bloody Red Hand. Former Travel with Rick Steves producer Sarah McCormick explored her ancestral roots in Ireland back when an economic recession still cast a shadow. She sent us this to commemorate the Irish famine of the 1800s. I'm walking alone along the north bank of the River Liffey that runs through Dublin. The boardwalk is practically deserted, well away from the touristy crowds south of the river. And then I happen upon a group of people. Like me, they are heading east, toward a wooden tall ship moored on the riverbank up ahead. They are all incredibly tall and impossibly thin, and the expressions on their faces make me want to look away. They are dressed in rags and their feet are bare. One of the men has a lifeless child slung over his shoulder. A hungry-looking dog follows them. Of course, they are statues, depicting 19th-century famine victims, heading to a ship that will sail them out of their hungry country. I'm standing on the decks of a famine ship, a 150-foot-long wooden tall ship, like the one that brought my own Irish ancestors to the New World during the Irish potato famine. Our tour guide, Paul, is talking about what the Irish call the Great Hunger, when a blight decimated the potato crop in the mid-19th century. Under British rule, Irish tenant farmers eked out a desperate living on small plots of rented land. Because the potato yielded a higher number of calories per acre than any other available crop, millions of Ireland's poor relied on it as their primary source of food. Beginning in 1845, a fungus destroyed the potato crop several years in a row. No significant help arrived from England or anywhere else, and at least one million Irish died of starvation and disease. Another million emigrated on ships like these. Of course, 1847 was the worst year. It was known here as Black 47. And not only were people dying from starvation, but also huge outbreaks of disease, especially the likes of dysentery, cholera, and then a huge outbreak of typhus, which became known as famine fever or ship's fever. And therefore, ships became known as coffin ships. We duck around the rigging and descend into the ship, down a steep set of stairs to a cramped cabin. The ceilings are low and there are no windows. Narrow wooden bunks line the walls. Built as a cargo ship meant to carry only 40 people, it generally carried over 200 passengers on its voyages. Mortality rates aboard ships like these were around 30%. Toilets were non-existent on the original. 
It was just buckets and chambers and throwing it overboard. When people came on board, they would find wherever they could to sleep. People taking turns in sleeping, anyone travelling alone, they would share with complete strangers. The ship I'm on is actually a modern, seaworthy replica of a famine ship called the Jeannie Johnston. Inside its cramped cabin, there are life-sized wax models representing actual people who traveled on the Jeannie Johnston, some of whose stories have been tracked down. There would have been a lot of women on board, indentured servants, or the likes of Mary Pendergast in the corner down here to my right. She has a letter in her hand. Do you see it? November 16th, 1852. My dearest sister, we're delighted to hear that you've decided to come and stay at myself and me hall in New York. The children are so looking forward to meeting you and we are dying to hear of news from home. God bless and protect you on your journey, your loving sister Maggie. About 160 miles away on the southern coast is Cove, spelled C-O-B-H. Estimates are that during the height of the famine, 2.5 million Irish sailed out of Cove in less than a decade. Playing host to so many sad partings earned Cove the nickname the saddest place in Ireland. The Cove Heritage Center on the waterfront is a museum that tells the story of the famine immigrants. It also has an exhibit about the Titanic, which picked up its last passengers right here in Cove before heading out into the Atlantic. Out on Ireland's west coast in County Mayo, facing the New World, there's another ship you can visit. It's the National Famine Monument, and it sits alone in a grassy field. This ship is Ireland's largest bronze sculpture. Skeletons of famine victims form the ship's rigging. I find this sculpture even harder to look at than the statues walking along the riverbank in Dublin. They at least had a chance of making it. Poverty and emigration didn't end with the famine. If you walk into a pub in Ireland, before the night is over, you'll hear the band play a song about sad goodbyes and longed-for reunions. When Ireland's Celtic tiger economy boomed back in the 1990s, the tide turned. Ireland became a place to come back to. But with the financial crisis of recent years, good jobs are scarce and emigration from the island is on the rise again, especially among the young. On my way to the airport to fly home, my cab driver's eyes well up when he tells me about his two daughters, both in their 20s. He's just sent them to New York to stay with friends, where they can find work. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. With the Rick Steves Guidebook to England, Scotland, Ireland, or any place in Europe, I'll be right there with you as you put together the trip of a lifetime. They're each lovingly updated and carefully designed so you can travel smartly. Pick up the latest edition at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com and make those travel dreams come true.